like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be beginning a series examining in detail Dick's 1963 novel, The Game Players of Titan. Now, depending on where how you categorize Man in the High Castle, uh, whether it's science fiction or not, and that's actually a debate that takes place within the novel, uh, you know, and most people do categorize it in science fiction. It's alternate history, anyways, although there's not any clear science fiction elements. And prior to that, Dick had been writing a lot of mainstream fiction, mostly stuff that wouldn't be published until after he died. But The Game Players of Titan is the first of a series of science fiction novels he's going to write in the mid-1960s, one after another. I think in 1964, he actually publishes five novels, maybe four, maybe five novels, all in the same year. And The Game Players of Titan is a much more straightforward novel than The Man in the High Castle. It's, it, it actually in many ways feels like some of his earlier tales. It's, it's much better written, it's a lot more interesting, and it's, it's stronger than I think a lot of his earlier novels. But it feels like it in the sense that it's Dick playing with a, a society. You know, what, what if? What if the world looked like this? And what if this was the world the rules of the world. It's not quite the same feeling of a political dystopia that he had in some of his earlier novels like The World Jones Made, but it has elements of that. Um, and it's also one of a handful of novels that Dick is going to write in the 1960s that deal with colonial relationships. And I, I think The Man in the High Castle has that, certainly with the, the Japanese occupation in the United States. And then later novels are going to have colonial relations either it's the people on earth being in, in a situational war with foreign powers or being a subservient element in a larger empire i'm thinking particularly of now wait for last year or it'll be a, a situation in which humans are kind of a colonial power externally and i don't know if it's dick thinking about the vietnam war through a lot of his works i think that's probably part of it but in this case in the game players of Titan, it's the the Titanians. I think that's how it's pronounced in the book. The Titanians, you know, the the aliens from the moon of Saturn, Titan, have basically defeated Earth in a war and dominate their society in various ways. Now, it's not a direct colonial force, but they're there in the background, and they end up being a major plot point in the novel. So this this is something that I think is going to play with a lot more and. It's, it's, again, very different from some of his earlier works where he was interested in, like, human expansion and the, and the frontier. And he's presenting the frontier in those early novels in a very positive light. In the 60s, that changes. And the frontier becomes something much more banal, some, something much more ominous, dangerous. Or sometimes it's just an extension of kind of suburbia and all the bad elements of, of suburbia. So we start to see hints of that, I think, in the game players of Titan. Plot-wise, it's 
I think it's a kind of the novel that you're going to take more out of it in the way he describes the world and the way it works and its elements than the actual plot. The plot is a murder mystery and it has a lot of elements of, in fact, I think he's kind of lifting, cribbing almost in, in some specific ways anyways, stealing from Agatha Christie's novel Murder on the Orient Express. Particularly in the way, like what you have in the Murder of the Orient Express, spoiler alert, is a, kind of a collective crime being committed. And that's something that Dick plays with here. But I guess the plot is essentially a murder mystery. I'll get into the details of it as we go on. The elements that's really kind of science fiction about the murder mystery itself is the way psychic abilities and precognition go into the investigation of the crime and go into the committing of the crime itself. And then we're going to find different layers of this dealing also with kind of the geopolitical situation of the earth being a colony or a semi-colonized province of, of the Titanian Empire. There's a lot more going on here, though, socially and culturally that make this novel quite interesting. And I, I think really we got elements about sexuality as a major theme in the Game Players of Titan, particularly the liquid marriage. It's something Dick writes a lot about in his stories and even some of his novels, broken marriages and faulty marriages. Here it becomes a systemic thing. It's almost a requirement of people's lives that 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 brides, what, what, you know, partners, married partners. I went trying to say married partners are just swapped pretty much at random throughout the world, especially among the elite. Now, there's not many people on this earth. There, I think there's something like 3 million humans left on the planet, but everything's intact. There wasn't a war that destroyed everything. So all the cities are intact. So what happens is the remaining people on Earth basically set up these feudal domains for themselves. And then they play a game. And that's where the title comes from. This, this game is called Bluff. And it actually has some elements of Monopoly in it, it seems. But I, I'm not quite, I don't got a full picture of the rules of this game or anything, but it's a gambling game in which people put up for stakes whole cities and whole, you know, towns and things. And people kind of rule them, but they rule essentially empty cities because there's so few people left on the planet. I think at one point they, they're visiting a, a used record store, and this is the only used record store selling classical music in the whole world just because there's so few people. Here. So this, the element of population and the, the fact that there's so few people and people are not having children anymore leads to this system in which people swap brides or husbands, depending on your point of view, that, you know, pretty much several times. One of the characters has been married 15 times. Another one's been married like 20 times. These marriages are really designed to be short term. But this is the reason for this is to maximize the chances of, of pregnancies happening because the fertility rate are so low. So by mixing and matching people as much as possible, it's more likely you're going to get have a child. And, you know, one of the popular ways people find out if they're pregnant is they have to bite this kind of paper. And, you know, that if it turns green or something, then they'll know they're pregnant. But usually most women are infertile or maybe it's the men who are infertile. I don't, I'm not sure. I think people overall are due to things that happened before the Titanians actually came. It, had to, it was actually the Chinese who kind of polluted the gene pool so people couldn't have kids. So th there's a reason for the couple swapping that takes place. But you get this, this, this kind of suggestion of the sexual revolution and that whole 
culture in the United States that may have been reflected here. And I, you know, one of the characters here is actually named Carol. And Carol Dota was, of course, one of the famous San Francisco kind of strippers. There was actually the, what was it called? It was a Condor Club. Now, I don't know. It, it says here on Wikipedia, she made international news in 1964, first by dancing topless in the city's Condor Club, club and then enhancing her bus side through silicon injections. But it says here um, she started a little bit earlier than this. So, so I guess I, I guess I might be reading too much into it to think that Dick may have named this character after Carol Dota. But I like to think that. I mean, certainly one re it's hard to read this novel and not think of elements of the sexual revolution at work in in how he conceived of it. And how he's conceived of this social social structure. What else do we have here? Well, the the fact that cities become the playthings of elites is something that really is striking. Again, this is this is a thing that Dick is very interested in. We saw it a lot in his short stories. The the city being reconstructed or remade. Here they're just sort of swapped and traded, kind of as gambling, you know, for gambling purposes and it's almost just a game but some are really important to people like Berkeley one of our main character loses Berkeley before the novel even begins and this is really a traumatic thing for him to to lose this city and much of the plot resolve, revolves around him trying to get Berkeley back so there's that element of it another thing we have here is the Rushmore effect now the Rushmore effect is referred to only with technologies and essentially it's AI so people would say like the toasters Rushmore effect told me that the toast was ready or you know cars will have rush more effects buildings and homes will have rush more effects so this is essentially the ai that's in all this technology and it performs a lot of service work for for people so what do we have here um just to sum up we have the theme of of relationships and marriage and marriage swapping and i think that ties in various ways to the sexual revolution we have a, a depopulated earth with a very low fertility and then the social consequences of just the lack of population we have people trading and buying and selling cities we have their elite being basically you know controlling whole cities and controlling their fate we have ai discussed here what else oh and then we have the colonial relationship with the vugs or the titanians the, they're the titanians they're, they're from Titan, but they're called Vugs by the by the the humans. So that kind of gets you into the major themes of the game players of Titan. I I rather like this novel. I, I think above and beyond the the murder mystery, which is, is kind of fun. It's certainly interesting, but I I think this the world he built here shows a lot of cr creativity and and thought. So as the story opens, we meet our main character, whose name is Pete Gardner, and he's drunk and he's fighting with the Rushmore effect of his car. And it's a common thing as people, you know, Gardner will fight with his car a lot and he's drunk a lot in this novel. So these are two fundamental aspects of his character that are established very early in, in the story. And he just we get a lot of exposition through his anguish over the things that's happened to him about the world for one he lost berkeley in the game he lost his wife freya in the game and freya has been married to someone else what actually happens in the game is if you roll a three in the game 
you get a new marriage. You get a you get to marry someone else. So he lost his wife and he lost Berkeley in the same day. Now another because the population is so low and there's only something like three million people on the whole planet, technology has evolved ways that people don't age. So there's a special gland that people have that essentially keeps them alive for as long as possible. And this, of course, gives them a very long time to try to reproduce and go through a lot of marriages to try to find the right pairing, the right match, the right genetic match that will allow them to have, have kids. We learn early on about the Vugs, the Titanians, and their relationship. The Titaniums themselves are, well, they're psychic, and they're kind of paternalistic. They are actually trying to help the humans recover from their loss of population. And they're the ones who introduced the game, the bluff. And this is the major pastime, the major kind of social interaction that people have. People organize into groups to play bluff. Later on, we learn that one of the major ways that people can be punished and chastised by the state is by taking away their right to play bluff. Uh, this is how property is exchanged, essentially, because there's so much material wealth on Earth because People have died down, had died out because of lack of population, by lack of fertility. They haven't died out because of, of war. So there's all this material wealth on Earth. All this stuff is still still there. So there's really, it's kind of a post-scarcity environment only, almost by, by nature. So what people do is then just gamble and exchange whole cities, right? And it just, just shows you this, the mass of wealth of the people who, who remain, almost everyone that we meet is wealthy. Now, there are some people who are higher than others. They're called bindmen, and the bindmen are the people who own cities. But it seems a lot of people do. If you think, you know, two, three million people left on the planet, there's always going to be some small town or some property for people people to own. But these, these towns are all essentially ghost towns. Um, now, Pete Gardner is has all kinds of psychological problems. He's He's essentially bipolar. We see him either very depressed or very active and dreaming of getting Berkeley back, or other times he's just drunk and moping. He needs drugs to go to sleep. Um, much of the economic activity is done by machines that are given consciousness through this thing called the Rushmore effect. So there's a lot of automation here, too. And that's another element of the post-scarcity at work in, in this novel. And as we enter chapter two, we learn a little bit more of what's happened to Earth. Essentially, um, radiation it caused the end of the, the declining birth rates, but it wasn't a full-blown nuclear war. And this war, this was a war with China that took place many, many generations prior to the current one, but it's still very much in people's memory because it's the root cause of, of their trouble. Now, this led to the declining population and also made it very easy for the Vugs to to conquer Earth. There are only very, very rare examples of fertility and the number of young people around are very few. It's, it's kind of, if you've seen that movie, Children of Men, it's it's kind of like that, where like the young people, the youngest person in town is a very famous, famous person. Now, Gardner has retreated to, to a town called San Rafael, which is one he has left. He's lost Berkeley, and this is really, of course, very traumatic for him. He, he wants this town back. Now, he desperate, he calls the man who he lost Berkeley to, a man named Walter, 
and he tries to get him to trade Berkeley back to him and he tries to offer some things. And then the, this man, Walter, says, well, I already sold Berkeley. I sold Berkeley to Pendleton Associates. Now, Pendleton Associates is a company that is basically a business agent for one of the richest and most powerful bind men on earth, a man named Jerome Luckman, or sometimes just referred to as Lucky Luckman. He's called Lucky Luckman because, or his name is, I guess it's just chance, but that his name is Luck, but he's incredibly lucky and he's famous for winning the game of bluff and being very good at the game, or not even being necessarily good as being just very, very lucky. And in fact, there's a character who's kind of a down on this luck record store salesperson who doesn't have much property to put up, but is very good at bluff. And he thinks he can beat Luckman, but it's an, a matter of getting past his luck and outlasting him where skill can matter. And there is, seems to be a balance here of how much skill is involved in the game and how much luck. But Jerome Luckman has all the luck. And we meet him in chapter three, and he's already owns Berkeley by this point, and he's talking to a precog. Now the precogs, of course, one of Dick's favorite posthumans. He uses them a lot of stories, especially in the 1960s. He he didn't use them much in the later 1950s. They were in a lot of his early stories, and then he doesn't use them much in the late 50s, early 60s. But they start to be used a lot in the 1960s. But they kind of changed about their function. And what we find with the precogs is that they're, they're no longer these fundamental threats to humanity like the golden man. They're instead just kind of agents of rich people and powerful people, especially in this novel, in The Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, you have the same sort of relationship. So I, I think this shows a changing attitude of Dick's about the post-human, about their place in, in, you know, in society. Less, less of threat and more of just a, a serviceable agent, uh, something that can be exploited. Now, of course, precogs are illegal in the game and people are regularly checked. EEGs are used to identify psychic abilities and psychic phenomenon. Um, but this particular, particular precog, Dave Moutreau, is talking with them and Jared Luckman wants to get away with trying to use David Moutreau and he's he's kind of weighing whether it's worth risking it. He had earlier won New York City in bluff and he won it from a man named Joe Schilling who we're going to meet a little bit later on and he relates to David Moutreau and then through David Moutreau to us how he won New York City from Joe Schilling. So we already know that uh, Luckman had hired Pendleton Associates to, to buy essentially Berkeley and, and so because he wants to get a foothold into California because apparently it's like states there's only 10,000 people in California and but there's an association of buying men who meet to play the game in California and they feel kind of lucky that they don't have luck men in their association but once he had Berkeley he they couldn't really keep him out of the bluff game in California so it's kind of the, the entrance into the, the local manifestation of the game. Now, Garden eventually finds out that Luckman is responsible for, you know, is connected with Pendleton and, and has got a hold of Berkeley. Now, in Chapter 4, we finally we meet this Joe Schilling, who was referenced in the earlier chapter, the one who pre once owned New York City but lost it to, to Luckman. And he's running a record shop in... I'm, where is it exactly? Anyways, it doesn't matter. People zip around so much in this in this novel. Cars can just basically go all around the planet very quickly. Um, 
it almost has to be because no one lives in these cities. So if you want to meet people, you basically have to go to the town that they dwell in. They might be the only per people person living in the town. This, for instance, is the only record shop that sells classic, old classical records in the entire world at this point. Now, this is how Joe Schilling is making his money now that he lost New York City. And they're just sitting around talking opera, drinking some tea. Um, and they're discussing Pat McClure. Sorry, Pat McLean. Pat, Pat, Pat McLean is one of the few people living in his territory. And he he's really interested in her sexually and also in terms of her fertility because she has a daughter, Mary Ann McLean, who you know, is proof that Pat McLean is, is fertile. And Pat's also a, a precog, although I don't think he knows this yet, but it becomes clear pretty soon, pretty early in the novel that she's a precog and that becomes an important um, plot point. In fact, Marianne comes into the store at one point looking for, looking for records. What else do they talk about? Well, they, they mostly though, the, the shilling and, Pete Garden talk about Berkeley and talk about Luckman. And I think it's actually here that Garden finds out that this Pendleton Associates is affiliated with Luckman. And Joe Shelley knows all about Luckman because he lost New York City to him previously. And he kind of thinks he can beat Luckman. He thinks he's just lucky. He thinks he has a better skill at the game than Luckman. But he doesn't have any property to put up. And he doesn't have anyone who's willing to really put him up. And he needs a lot of property because luck will always win out in the short term, but in the long term, skill will win out in the game. And so he thinks he can beat Luckman, but he's going to need property put up to help him out. And that's why he he's kind of hinting to Garden that I can help you get Berkeley back if you are willing to back me in the game, back me with property and be my partner. And they talk about luck. In fact, at one point, Joe Schilling says, well, didn't you have good luck with Freya, your former wife, and he says, Nah, I can't explain it because on a rational basis we made a good pair, but something intangible didn't work. In my opinion, that's why she and I lost at the table. Somehow we could never really pull together as a couple. She recalled his wife before Freya, Janice Marks, and now Janice Remington. They had cooperated successfully, at least as it seemed to them, but of course they had not had any luck. As a matter of fact, Pete Gardner never had any luck. In all the world, he had no progeny. The goddamn red Chinese, he said to himself. He wrote it off with a customary invented phrase. And yet, so this term luck is used to, of course, in terms of the game, but luck, the kind of, almost, I guess it's cap lower case here, but you almost got this image as like capital L luck. Luck, when people say, do you have luck? Have you had luck? It refers to, have you ever had a child? Or have you ever gotten your wife pregnant? Or have you ever been pregnant? And luckmen, Again, his name really fits because Luckman has had about 11 children throughout his life. And Joe Schilling says this, We should face the fact that Luckman, in many ways, is the finest, most valuable human being alive today. The most direct issue, the greatest success in bluff, his amelioration of the status of the non-bees in his area. And so, Joe, you know, they're, they're talking about maybe working together to try to beat uh, Luckman. Now, they know that now that Luckman owns... Berkeley, he's able, he's going to be able to join the California group of bluff players, which is called Pretty Blue Fox. This is the name of the group. And this is something everyone in this group dreads because Luckman is so lucky and so successful. And he'll quickly gobble up all of their property if if they're not careful and kind of disrupt the balance of power in in California. And that's you get a sense that there's this is this concern about balance of power in among these groups. 
So then we shift briefly back to Luckman talking to Mutro about, about luck, about the EEGs, about how to avoid the test for precognition in as they prepare to go to California to play the game there. So then, then in chapter five, we actually meet this group of blind men, the Pretty Blue Fox, uh, which of course has as members Freya Gaines, who is um, Garden's ex-wife, Walter Remington, Stuart Marks, a bunch of others. So there's a whole group of, of these bind men. Some are more important than others, but there's a group of them that become really central to the plot. But these are the core bind men in this group. And they know that Luckman is coming, is going to enter the group, and they want to have a plan to stop him. What can they do about this? And really the only thing pro prophylactically they can do is test for precognability. If it's just luck, there's not much they can do about that. But they do think if he is cheating, if he is using precogs or psychic power in some way to win the, win the game, they could probably stop him that way. Now a new player arrives. Her name is Carol, Carol Holt. Um, and she is unmarried. And of course, Garden just lost his wife. So they arrange, essentially do a quick arranged marriage between Carol and Pete Garden. And then this will make Carol Pete's partner, at least. Now, of course, we know Joe Schilling has talked about being his being Garden's partner. Um, but in terms of the game, kind of these married couples usually serve as the partners in the game. Yet he can't marry until he rolls a three. So they actually have to go through this ritual where he rolls the dice a few times until he finally does roll an authentic three. This allows him to get married. And they do a very, very quick wedding ceremony. So I pretty much from the time this character is introduced, Carol, to the time she's married to to Pete Garden, it's less than two pages uh, in the book. And as soon as this very, very quick marriage ceremony, which was, which was a little more than just saying, do you, Carol? Do you, Pete? Uh, and they both said yes, and they were married. That's when Lucky Luckman or Jerome Luckman arrives to want to join this group and play um, bluff to play the game. Now that he has property in California, he has to be welcomed in to the game. Now, they despair internally about how they really don't have any plan to defeat him, but we also get a, the, the, the first really full, full complete description of, of Luckman. Quote, so this is the one and only Lucky Luckman. This is what the one and only Lucky Luckman looks like, Freya said to herself. A brawny man, stockily built with a round, apple-shaped face. All his coloration pale and straw-like. A peculiar vegetable quality as if Luckman had been nourished indoors. His hair had a soft, thick texture, thin texture and did not hide his pinkish scalp. At least Luckman had a clean, well-washed look, Freya observed. His clothes, neutral and cut in quality, showed taste. But his hands, she found herself staring at his hands. Luckman's wrists were thick and furred in the same pale, whisker-like hair. The hands themselves were small, the fingers short, and his skin near his knuckles were spotted with what appeared to be freckles. His voice was oddly high-pitched, mild. She did not like him. There was something wrong with him. He had a capon-like quality, like a defrocked, barred priest. He looked soft where he should be hard. So that's the description of this most powerful bindman in the whole planet, essentially, and one of the most dangerous threats to the status quo of life in in California. So Luckman introduces his wife, Dottie, and then he talks to the man named Bill Calamine, who's like the head of this group, this group, Pretty, pretty Blue Fox, this group of, of bluff players. And they 
basically as a pr preliminary precaution ask Luckman to go through the EEG, EEG, EEG test to determine that there's not any psychic abilities among the players and of course there isn't and then they kind of confront him and, and they make it clear that Luckman is not welcome here and they don't really want him here and Luckman just kind of plays you know coy and says well i'm just a player i just am a little successful i'm a little lucky but you know no one's ever accused me of cheating i i've i i just played a win just like all of you and then they pete talks back directly to his great enemy luckman here and says you know the game wasn't designed to cause monopoly it was designed to actually distribute these vast resources of the planet these cities in a more fair and equitable way right the luck in the game had the was supposed to have a distributive effect, not a homo you know, not a monopolistic effect. But Luckman's been playing the game in such a way that he keeps winning and expanding his power, and this is disrupting the system. And it's actually at this time that a Vug comes in, and the Vug seemed to speak telepathically to to the people, and he, you know, is is there basically to double check on the credentials of this new man entering in, and he questions whether he had a right to be there. And Luckman insists that he had a complete legal right to, to play the game, to play bluff here. Quote, this is my legal right. You don't have any power to intercede in this. You're not our masters. Let me refer you to the Concordat of 2095 signed between your military and the UN. All you can do is make recommendations and give assistance to us when it's requested. I didn't hear anyone request your presence into the room tonight. End quote. So eventually they, the, Vug, the Vug has to leave, not really able to interfere here. But it tells us something about the relationship between the Titanians and, and Earth. Even though the Titanians clearly are the colonial power, they really have a hands-off approach. And the Earth, Earthlings have their own kind of government, their own way of doing things. Although Bluff is the main thing that's been brought over from Titan. And this whole game has been has been carried over, and especially the gambling, the, the fascination with gambling is something that came from Titan. So Luckman tries to be, make nice with the group, and he actually offers them like small territories outside of California if they lose all their property in California to him. He'll, he'll be nice, you know, and give them someplace. So they'll still be bindmen. They'll still be in these positions of authority, but they won't necessarily, they might get kicked out of California if they're not, if they're not lucky. Um, of course, uh, that... Precog, Dave Boutreau, has not come, so he wasn't caught by the EEG. And that's more or less where Chapter 5 ends, and that's that's about a, for the first quarter of the novel or so. So I will stop at this point with um, my look at the first few chapters of The Game Players of Titan. Um, you know, it's, it's a... I, I really like this novel. I think there's a lot to like about this novel. I don't think it's one of the novels that a lot of people read of Philip Dix. It's not one of the most popular of his, of his accounts. But I think this, especially, I'm really special, I'm interested in how marriage is conceived of here and what this tells us about Dick's views of marriage and the family. And when we think about the world we live in, in which, you know, most marriages, at least in the West, fail, I guess in the United States, I think in Europe, it's a little bit more marriages tend to survive, but that's because I think fewer people get married or they get married later in life, you know, after they have had a kid and lived together for a few years. But, you know, in the United States, 50, 60 percent of marriages fail and many people are in their third, fourth, fifth marriages. That, you know, is kind of the world 
that's described here. Now, I think Dick at his point would have been on his third marriage when he wrote this this book. So he would still have two more after this. But he's a serial monogamist. It seems quite clear from his biography. And that's what he's describing in, in this novel. And I think it feeds into the sexual revolution in various ways and maybe even predicts a little bit of like the swinger subculture that would develop in the later 60s and, and 70s. So just to historicize a little bit, I think that's fascinating. And then the image of a world in which cities become the playthings of the elite is something. I mean, that's that's on my mind a lot. If you look at actually where the power in societies dwell, and especially at the city level, is often in developers and mayors. Mayors are some of the most important politicians now. We, we give a lot of focus to the presidents and governors and things like that. But actually, mayors have a lot of the day-to-day power over people's lives. Um, and so even more so urban planners. We can think back to, is it Robert Carroll's book, The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, right? One of the most powerful people in New York City history, never elected to, to any office. So anyways, uh, there's more to say about this novel, but uh, I will pick up these themes as I go through the rest of it. Um, so I'll have three more episodes where I look at the novel, The Game Players of Titan. Um, thank you so much for listening to my opening thoughts on this this novel. If you have your own thoughts on the novel, if you've read it, if you have opinions about it or the themes, please leave them below or you can send me an email 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would very much love to hear from you and thanks for supporting this podcast and, and I hope you're enjoying this read through of the works of Philip K. Dick. So I'll see you next time with part two of my comments on the game players of Titan. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.